Hello, and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Janet Fleischman, Senior Associate with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. We are now in the second part of a two-part series we recorded with Professor Karesha Abdul-Karim, one of the world's leading AIDS researchers who has made pioneering contributions to understanding the HIV epidemic among young people, especially among young women. As some of you will remember from last week, Karesha has a distinguished biography. She is a professor in clinical epidemiology at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University, honorary professor in public health at the Nelson Mandela School of Medicine at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. She's an expert advisor to UNAIDS, to PEPFAR, and to NIH, and she was the principal investigator of the landmark Caprisa 004 tenofovir gel trial, a microbicides trial, which was an important scientific breakthrough. We asked Karesha to discuss her work and the critical challenges of preventing HIV in young women and the urgency of the HIV epidemic in South Africa. In part one, you heard about some of the social and economic conditions that perpetuate harmful gender norms and sexual dynamics, including the transmission networks, whereby most young women are infected by older men, and that older men are infected by women their own age, and those men go on to infect younger women. This week, we are diving into the biological risk factors that increase women's vulnerability to infection, both by identifying factors that increase HIV acquisition and how they also reduce the effectiveness of prevention technologies. We'll also discuss the importance of continuing to support important biomedical discoveries in HIV research. You and your husband, the well-known researcher Salim Abdul-Karim, have led the Center for AIDS program of research in South Africa, CAPRISA, for many years. Could you describe some of your research into the factors that make women biologically more vulnerable to infection, including some of your current research on the cycle of HIV transmission? So CAPRISA was set up in 2002 with a grant from the National Institutes of Health under the CIPRA program, a comprehensive international program of research um, on AIDS. And there were five of these program awards that were made. What makes this grant special is that it asked investigators in international settings to identify what are their priority questions. So if you take the five grant awards that were made, program grant awards, all five uh, centers that were set up had a different set of questions. In uh, South Africa, and uh, particularly being based in um, in Durban, KwaZulu-Natal, we were faced and still continue to be faced with two big challenges. One is the very high infection rates in young women and wh- who's infecting who, why these high rates, because sexual transmission is not the most efficient route of transmission, and what is it we can do to break these, um, uh, the risk in, uh, in young, prevent infection in young women. So that was one priority. The second priority was the huge number of deaths that were taking place. And this was largely because uh, TB is the most common opportunistic infection. And uh, about 70% of the people who have advancing HIV disease ha- are co-infected with TB. And when you have TB, and you don't treat the TB and you do the ARV treatment, you have about a 56% higher mortality rate. So that's what we try to do, is prevent the deaths from TB-HIV co-infection, but I'll focus now on young women. 
And um, so the earlier, in terms of the new work, we've understood the cycles of transmission is a very important insight. It's now guiding some of the new PEFA priorities, but and also um, UNAIDS priorities in terms of the response to the epidemic, as well as in South Africa and in our uh, National AIDS Coordinating um, Strategic Plan, you'll see a lot of the thinking that emanated from the study coming in. But we've also been trying to understand, following the completion of the Caprisa 004 trial that tested uh, tenofovir gel, why we had a very modest protective benefit of the... Well, it was really good news at the time in 2010. It was the first time that we had a woman-initiated technology working. And, uh, and this was really the microbicide trial. The micro, uh, microbicide trial. And it was the first demonstration that the use of antiretrovirals by uninfected people can prevent HIV infection. So it really injected a lot more enthusiasm into the prevention landscape because prior to that, there was something like 39 trials. Uh, it wasn't for lack of trying, but, you know, the numerous trials, we kept kept going, kept going. I mean, we as in the global community, you know, constantly trying to find ways to prevent HIV infection. So tenofovir is very anti-HIV specific. So we really expected much better results. And because we had a positive result, we were able to uh, and had specimens that we had stored um, over the course of the study, we were able to go into the specimen repository and do now try and understand. So the first thing you want to know is the adherence. So we, when we measured the drug levels, we found, you know, they were high adherers, intermediate and low adherers. And even the low adherers had some protection. They had measurable drug. But when we um, looked at the drug level data, we found that you needed in women to have a certain threshold of drug measurable. So if you had 1,000 nanograms per mil of drug present, you had about 75% protection. If it was less than 1,000 nanograms per mil, you might as well have been on placebo. The lines just you know, overlapped each other. So that was the second lesson, like adherence is important. The more adherence, the more protection. But we also learned in the drug level analysis, you need a threshold of protection. And it had to be, what is magical number with the gel was 1000 and suddenly you're closer to where you should be. So we're trying to understand why this difference and went back to looking at you know how the pro drug is delivered, um, and to be active it needs two phosphorylation steps, etc. And we're thinking what would be competing for the phosphates uh, in terms of uh, HIV and and what else is there, and we so we started to look at uh, a phenomena of inflammation in the general tract. And we measure that by measuring these chemicals. And uh, what we found quite strikingly is that prior to infection, if you have um, five out of nine cytokines present, your chances of 
acquiring HIV infection increases three to fourfold. So we like, okay, um, the most obvious thing is to look at uh, what's causing the inflammation? Is it other STIs? And what we found was that other STIs only contributed the common STIs like syphilis and gonorrhea and trichomonas and that only contributed about 20% of the, uh, the general inflammation. So we have a number of studies to try and understand that better. But the first lesson in the inf uh, general inflammation was that if you had inflammation, your risk of acquiring HIV increased substantially. The second thing we learned by sequencing the viruses in those who had inflammation versus not was that those who had inflammation, the viruses that were able to establish infection were of the low virulent strains that if you didn't have inflammation, could not establish an infection. So what it meant was that if you had inflammation, you uh, were getting infected with these strains of virus that otherwise would not be able to establish infection. And the third um, uh, observation we had was that if you had inflammation, the efficacy of tenofovir gel was substantially reduced. So not only is it increasing your risk of getting infected, you're getting infected with these runty strains of HIV, and it's impacting the one intervention that we know works, and particularly uh, for women. So those were quite concerning. The second, so now we're trying to understand better through um, characterizing the microbiome where you can isolate the viruses, the bacteria, the fungi present. And we find that those women who, um, who had one anaerobic organism present called Prevotella bivia were 19 times more likely to have inflammation and 13 times more likely to acquire HIV infection. And then, you know, there's been some in vitro work done that shows, for example, um, if you grow Gardnerella vaginalis, which is another anaerobic organism that dominates um, in this, uh, in a general tract that doesn't have Lactobacilli crispatus species dominance, um, is that these uh, organisms compete for the tenofovir. And uh, in fact, the experiment in the test tube shows within three to four hours, you lose about 40% of the tenofovir. And within 24 hours, all of the tenofovir is gone. So these organisms are not just sitting there making a mess in the general tract and predisposing you to all kinds of things, but they are also gobbling up the tenofovir. The tenofovir is a, like a nucleoside analog, and so it's part of the building blocks and they're able to convert it and, and use it uh, for their own uh, reproduction. Uh, so that's like the important clues that we're getting and probably now um, uh, what it tells us is we need to uh, pay not just not uh, in addition to our investments to developing technologies 
that are less user-dependent, like long-acting, slow-release ways of delivering ARVs or even a new field of passive immunity through the use of broadly neutralizing antibodies, we also need to pay attention to the genital tract and understand better what exactly are those changes in the general tract that's enhancing HIV acquisition, but also could be impact, could impact the interventions, the very interventions you're trying to evaluate. And so, you know, so we could, um, so we need to be thinking both about behavior and biology as we think about next generation products. And I think what's also very exciting is the way the technology is evolving that allow us to do some of these um, in vitro experiments uh, before we go into clinical testing. Uh, so in a way, screen products. So the, the sort of thinking that's coming along is, you know, should you be adding some kind of um, probiotic or antibiotic uh, together with the PrEP to enhance the PrEP efficacy because that's the thing we have right now? Uh, or should we be uh, looking at, um, you know, maybe like an anti-inflammatory agent with the ARV? So I think a lot of it is uh, is ideas at this stage. Some of those are moving along. Uh, certainly the long-acting, slow-release products are what's moving ahead. But I think the other, which is how do you deal with it, with the vaginal uh, health issues together with its role in HIV acquisition. Are there possibilities that you see on the horizon to use some of the new prevention and treatment tools to bend the curve of the epidemic in a new way in some of the particular hot spots? So, uh, I, you know, since 2009, the response, South African response to the epidemic has been quite exemplary in terms of policies and keeping abreast of new developments, um, both in terms of treatment and and also in terms of prevention. And I think um, one of the disconnects has been the ability to target these interventions to the right population, get the coverage rates you need, and uh, all of that. And that's a that's a particular challenge because South Africa is a very large country, and uh, the healthcare infrastructure delivery infrastructure is quite weak. The majority of the population utilise uh, public sector health services, so that um, doing all of those things uh, and spending uh, a lot of South African taxpayers' money and uh, supplemented with money from PEPFAR, uh, we've made some progress, but not enough to turn the tide. And so when I work in these communities, both Slim and I have really been thinking, what is it that we can do differently in terms of And I think it's not, um, you know, uh, we have to do better in terms of enhancing our treatment coverage rates. So right now, we have about eight times more women receiving antiretroviral treatment compared to men. And so, you know, not only do men not know the HIV status, but they're not typical users of our health facilities. 
The same way understand prevention and treatment of young women is going to alter the uh, transmission rates and also the maternal mortality rates and just mater uh, mortality rates in the 15 to 30 year age group, which is uh, very, very high at this point in time, uh, is that uh, we have to do better. And what is new is PrEP. And Can you describe what PrEP is? Yeah, so PrEP is the use, well, it's, it's a short form of pre-exposure prophylaxis. And right now we use PrEP uh, in a way, um, uh, it's about using uh, tenofova together with emtricitabine in a tablet uh, being taken every day. But, um, you know, there are new formulations of PrEP coming along. And as I described earlier, these broadly neutralizing antibodies, that, that's, that's PrEP, that's a biological PrEP. So you can have a chemical PrEP, which is an ARV-based one. So even as we get like injectables and implants further down the line, those would all be uh, examples of pre-exposure prophylaxis. So it's a prevention technology. It's a prevention technology. So if you're uninfected, you can use this uh, two-drug uh, combination of ARVs. Um, so you know, to what? So so the, what are the challenges? The challenges are extensive stigma and discrimination that still keeps people away from services, keeps people away from knowing their HIV status. It's the single biggest barrier. The second is that uh, the important groups that need to access services, which is men 25 to 40 years and women under 25, are not utilizing the health services. So we only got one third of that cycle of transmission three groups, which is women over 25 coming in, family planning or antenatal services or whatever. But the two key groups are missing. So we need to start thinking about where can we reach them? And should we be going out into the communities as opposed to waiting for them? So we've been waiting and waiting, they're not coming. So it's, uh, you know, if you go into the communities and you do the testing there, well, the ANRS study tells us, the test and treat study in KwaZulu-Natal, that uh, you can get high levels of testing but then the linkage to care is broken down. So it kind of makes us think we need to be going into the community, doing the testing, uh, putting those who are infected on treatment, those uninfected on uh, PrEP, and those who uh, don't know their status, uh, to try and do that. And in a setting where more than 70% of the people are infected, should we be doing something radical like saying, well, just treat everybody, particularly as the new first-line regimen, uh, the only difference between pre-exposure prophylaxis medication and, and, and treatment for patients with AIDS is dolditegravir. So 
Can you, if you have to sit and now spend another 10 years testing everybody, hoping that you can get everybody tested, by then more people would have got infect, infected. If you go in and just simply do like a mass drug administration type uh, intervention with everybody in these communities getting antiretrovirals, does it provide an opportunity uh, for really in these very, very high burden districts that we see in KwaZulu-Natal, other parts of South Africa, other parts of Southern and Eastern Africa, does it offer an option? So that's something one would want to do across the board, but certainly in these very, very high transmission areas, um, is that something to think about? And I think some people are thinking, well, you have to do something different. And some modeling work that has been done suggests that it could be the turning point, for example, a year exposure of everybody in these communities on these antiretrovirals, you know, everybody 15 to 60 or whatever being put onto these tablets for just a period of a year could potentially break the back. That uh, idea, while it's radical, it's different, um, it, it couldn't possibly be imagined even a year ago. Uh, it has to be tested before one can go out and do it. And, you know, as things go, I don't necessarily think it needs to be a randomized controlled trial, but there needs to be some evidence that show if you do this, can you turn this around? And I think in the grander scheme of things, in the context of the UN 2030 Declaration of Ending AIDS as a Public Health Threat, these kinds of uh, settings, communities, where you have an unprecedentedly high prevalence of infection, continue to see high rates of new infections, you have to do something different. And is that something different, this... Uh, or is it something else? And, you know, we have to have a vaccine, we have to have a cure to NAIDS. But in the interim, can we maximize in a very targeted and strategic way delivery of everything we know works? And so everything we know works and take it into the community so that there's community ownership of this intervention. So I think we have for too long medicalized our response to the epidemic. We expect people to come to health facilities. They use health facilities when they're sick. <laughs> they don't typically use it when they're well, except for family planning, maybe. And, uh, and so I think uh, these are the kinds of things we need to be thinking, pondering, testing, and, uh, and, and just continuing to apply our minds on how can we turn this around? Because I think we have the tools that we need to do this. It's how do we utilize these tools? And it's not going to be a cookie-cutter approach, the same thing every way. And so how do we bring this granularity, this nuance to our response so that we don't have one person going and doing VMMC the next day, somebody else coming in? This is not about multiple people coming in and delivering component pieces. It's about a consolidated effort that's as owned by the community as by the people bringing these interventions in.
that respects their rights and all the Absolutely. context of those yeah. issues yeah. in such a complicated environment. Yeah. yeah. It's about ownership, it's about accountability, it's about tackling the tough issues and Quite seriously, you know, if if uh, it was easy, we would have sorted this out a long time ago. So there's these challenges. I think we've made immense progress. It is quite remarkable in just over 30 years that, you know, we now have a toolbox. I mean, I'm not saying we should stop putting more things in there. We need to continue to invest in better uh, technologies, both for prevention and treatment. But at the same time, we do have the makings uh, in that box of everything that we need. Now we've got to apply our minds to see how can we use it to actually get get ourselves, uh, the communities we work in, the populations we work in, to a point where we no longer dealing with the crisis. And, you know, with 37 million people living with HIV and increasing numbers surviving, uh, we also need to start preparing for uh, another era, which is surviving the HIV epidemic. And it comes with its own set of issues and challenges. So getting to that point, I think, enables us to say, at least we can stop this further spread of HIV, particularly in the very, very high burden districts that contribute just over, I think if you just take the uh, SADC region, it contributes about 60% of all the infections. So knocking things off in that region um, has an immediate effect on the continent and also on our global statistics. And finally, what's your message to the United States at this point? Uh, PEPFAR just had its 15th anniversary, and it's proved to be an extraordinarily important program in your country and elsewhere, and yet there are threats to PEPFAR's future. What is your message? So firstly, I would like to thank uh, the taxpayers in the U.S. and the U.S. citizens for uh, supporting the discovery research efforts. And in fact, even in a country like South Africa, um, the I think outside of the U.S., most of its research fundings uh, for health research come from the U.S. government, specifically through the NIH, USAID, or CDC. The PEPFAR program has been quite phenomenal in terms of instilling hope in Africa. So in 2003, for example, when the first funds were being released, um, it was one of the most devastating times in southern um, Africa where large numbers of very young people, young adults, were dying from AIDS. And, you know, we knew that ARV treatment was out there. We'd seen how it had been transforming AIDS from an inevitably fatal condition to one that's chronic and manageable. And we kind of were just watching this. And at the same time, seeing large numbers, I mean, in, in the communities I work in, we went from about two funerals every weekend on a Sunday to six or seven funerals on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It really was very, very bleak because these are the people who make sure you know, community gardens run, they work. And we had even, you know, workers, it, like in most industries, it, it had come down to a four-day week because staff had to go to family members' funerals and everything. And within a year or two, you could see 
how it was almost impossible to distinguish who had AIDS and who didn't have AIDS. There was like the immediate impact of ARV treatment availability. And I think as the PEFA program has evolved in its th- third fi- uh, in each of its five-year cycles, you know, it went from the treatment of AIDS patients as new technologies became available, providing the prevention burden. In in this current cycle, you know, dreams, all of those things has really been incredibly transforming in terms of the face of AIDS in one of the most devastated devastated regions in the world. So I can't say, uh, I can't express my gratitude on behalf of all the people who've benefited, who've worked in the field, who've witnessed this change uh, almost single-handedly through PEFAM. The Global Fund for AIDS TB Malaria has been important as well. And, and also several of the governments in these uh, places have. But if it was not for PEPFA really um, moving uh, almost like a paradigm shift that for the first time you had the same powerful drugs that were changing lives in industrialized countries doing that. So this, I would say, given all those investments, the success of those investments uh, in uh, elevating the value of all lives, um, regardless of where people are, uh, at this point in time, what we need is more intensified effort not a slowing down in investments because a slowing down is going to reverse all the gains we've made and create, in fact, a more severe situation where you could potentially increase drug-resistant strains of HIV, etc. So we're on the brink where I think good investments now will start to pay dividends in about seven to eight years' time. And these are about the wisest investments that can be made. And I hope that the investments in the PEFA program continue and continue to grow so that uh, this more intensified effort at this point in our response can be realized. Thank you so much, Karesha. It's an honor to have you here at CSIS. Thank you, Janet, and thank you. thanks to CSIS for continuing uh, to keep AIDS on the agenda and for creating these opportunities where we can also share and exchange knowledge and where others can see uh, how American investments are changing lives across the world through uh, global uh, goals being realized. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of our Take is Directed podcast and part two of our two-part conversation with Professor Koresha Abdul-Karim. If you missed part one of this series, we invite you to go back and listen to Koresha's unique story of her early engagement in this work and the socioeconomic and gender dynamics that intertwine with these biological conditions in South Africa. And as always, we invite you to subscribe to Take is Directed so you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.